This evening we're going to consider more exhortations from Paul, looking at Romans chapter 12, verse 15 through to verse 21, the end of the chapter. And today as we finish looking at chapter 12, a chapter that started with the Apostle Paul saying, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That's how the chapter started. We shall look at Paul's final exhortations to all who are saved from their sins and justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As I've already said in a previous sermon, having studied doctrine for the first 11 chapters of Romans, chapter 12 is where theory becomes practice, or at least it ought to, with the enabling grace of God and for his glory, if indeed you are a new creature in Christ. For me, as I consider the various exhortations like rejoicing and weeping with them that do rejoice and weep in verse 15, A key verse for me is verse 5. That's a verse I keep coming back to where Paul says, So we being many are one body in Christ and everyone members one of another. One body in Christ. We need to remember that as we look at these exhortations. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, as members of the body of Christ, we shall now look at our passage starting again with uh, verse 15 which says rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep the very fact that Paul gives an exhortation to rejoice with them that do rejoice tells me that it is not something that we might ordinarily do even though clearly we ought to If if it was something that we did anyway, Paul wouldn't need to exhort us to rejoice with them that rejoice. What could possibly get in the way of rejoicing with them that do rejoice? How about jealousy? Perhaps if a brother is promoted to a well-paid position whilst you're having to live on a tight budget. You might feel a little bit of resentment, a little bit of jealousy instead of rejoicing with them. Or what about the grace of God? As Christians, we ought to thank God for his grace towards ourselves and towards others. But it doesn't always happen that way. Such as when you see others receiving what you perceive to be is a little bit too much grace from God. Forgetting that grace is, by definition, completely and thoroughly undeserved anyway. The Lord Jesus Christ addresses that kind of jealousy in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through to 16. I'll read the whole passage to you. It's highly relevant. Jesus says in that passage, For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire labourers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the labourers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. 
And he went out and about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Again he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. So when even was come, when the evening was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the labourers, and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more. And they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the goodman of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us which have borne the burden and heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take thine, take that thine is, and go thy way. I will give unto this last even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. So you see that there, the ones who have been slogging away all day long and working through the midday sun, they just received the same as the ones who were hired for an hour at the end of the day. Really, it's none of their business what the the, the, the boss gives them, is it? If he wants to be gracious unto the last ones, that's his business. And they should just be thankful for whatever it is that they agreed to work for. The fact is that many who begin last and promise little in the kingdom of God, sometimes, by the grace of God, arrive at greater attainments in knowledge, grace and usefulness than others whose entrance into the kingdom is in much earlier years. Think of the Apostle Paul, for example. He was one born out of due time. He became a Christian late after being someone who persecuted and wasted the church. Yet he came not behind the chiefest of the apostles. The Apostle Paul, who wrote so much of the New Testament, and whose doctrine in Romans we've been studying for about a year now. Therefore, jealousy can get in the way of rejoicing with them that rejoice. Also in verse 15, Romans chapter 12, verse 15, Paul says, weep with them that weep. That means having a genuine empathy with others. In other words, it means feeling and sharing their sorrow. Again, it's probably easier to give a weeping person a gentle pat on the back, say a few kind words 
and then make yourself scarce rather than be there to share his burden. We have the example of the Lord Jesus Christ who wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Certainly Jesus wept because of death. Death is the consequence of sin. And we see that with Lazarus who had died. Again, it's the consequences of that horrible thing called sin. But also, as Lenski, the New Testament commentator said, the simple fact is that Jesus is both God and man. And so truly man that he here weeps with those that weep. He wept because his heart was filled with deepest sympathy. He didn't just stand there stony-faced and not caring when Lazarus was dead in the tomb and everyone around him was mourning. In summary, our sinful tendency, even as believers, is to be jealous when others rejoice and to pass them by when they mourn. However, a sorrow that is shared is but half a trouble and a joy that is shared is a joy made double. Let's have a look at verse 16. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. First of all, what being of the same mind one towards another does not mean is being in agreement with each other in matters of doctrine and faith. When it comes to doctrine and faith, the important thing is to be in agreement with the Bible. Being of the same mind one towards another comes under the heading of loving your neighbour as yourself. In other words, it means desiring and wanting for others to have what you would desire or want for yourself if you were in similar circumstances. Secondly, verse 16 In verse 16, mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. In other words, don't be a snob, but readily associate with lowly Christians the same as those who have wealth and status. This connects with what we've just been considering, being of the same mind one towards another. James, in his epistle, cautions against partiality when he says in James chapter 2, verses 1 through to 9, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons? For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, And ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him. But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name 
by the which ye are called, if ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. There really is no room for airs and graces or for a haughty spirit in the body of Christ. Consider the King of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, who made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, of a bond slave. He ate with sinners, he touched and healed people with leprosy. He wrapped a towel around his waist and washed his disciples' dirty feet. And he was numbered with the transgressors when he was crucified between two thieves, as he bare in his own body the sins of all the hell-deserving sinners who trust in him, from the least of them to the greatest. Last of all, in verse 16, be not wise in your own conceits. In other words, do not have a high opinion of your own wisdom. King Solomon had something to say on that subject. First of all, in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 7, he said, Be not wise in thine own eyes, fear the Lord and depart from evil. Then in Proverbs chapter 26 and verse 12, Solomon asked a rhetorical question when he said, Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope of a fool than of him. What we don't need in the church is, in a, is a wisdom that is in agreement with the wisdom of this world. Tragically, that can be seen to be happening in so many churches, the wisdom of the world prevailing. If it were to happen here, the three wise monkeys would have nothing on us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 25, Paul says that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Therefore, it is far better to have a godly wisdom through prayerful study of the scriptures and seeking the enabling grace of God to live out the word of Christ in your born-again life. As Jesus is your righteousness and your sanctification and your redemption, so too is he your wisdom. Look at verse 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Let me say once again that all the doctrine that we have studied in the first 12 chapters, sorry, the first 11 chapters of this letter are not worth a light. Neither is there any profession of faith or conversion testimony, no matter how dramatic it might be, if chapter 12 is not to some degree a reality in your life. You can have all the doctrine, you can have all the theory, but if it doesn't translate into practice, what is the point? Who are you trying to kid? If, if you are not 
being transformed by the renewing of your mind, back to verse 1 there, and everything that flows from that, as you're being transformed, as you're being conformed to the image of Christ, one would hope and pray that you bear the fruit, bring forth the fruit of salvation, as we see in all these exhortations. To the natural unregenerate man, revenge is sweet, And it is your absolute right to exact revenge on those who wrong you in some way. The natural man might even quote, or rather misquote, the scriptures to support personal revenge. For example, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. However, here in verse 17, Paul says, Recompense no man evil for evil. Coming back to eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, Those words come from an Old Testament passage about the judicial law that God gave to Israel of old and they were never meant to be a license to take personal revenge or to lynch those who harm you. Rather, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 and 39, ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. No room for personal revenge. That doesn't mean to say that you can't uh, take out civil remedy, go to the police or whatever when you are wronged. If and when you take personal revenge on evildoers, What you are doing is unleashing the evil that is within your own heart. As John Calvin rightly said, revenge is a passion unbecoming the children of God. In verse 17, Paul goes on to say, provide things honest in the sight of all men. If you are a Christian, your reward is from God and not from sinful men and you should have no interest in doing what you do to be seen and praised by men. That's something that the Jewish leaders were guilty of, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. That said, it is important that you provide things honest in the sight of all men. Namely, not only should you not do that which is wrong, but also you are to avoid suspicion of improper behaviour. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 21, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Therefore, it's not enough to have the attitude, my conscience is clear, I've done nothing wrong, so what if people think that I'm a crook? In order to avoid bringing dishonour to the gospel of Christ, You may need to explain your actions to a world that is watching you and waiting for you to trip up, waiting for you to stumble and to fall. Let's have a look at verse 18. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. The exhortation to live peaceably with all men includes those who oppose you, Such as in verse 14, where Paul said, Bless them which persecute you, 
Bless and curse not. We can learn a thing or two from other creatures about living peaceably with all men, as much as lieth in you. For example, Spurgeon said, I once lived where my neighbour's garden was divided from me only by a very imperfect hedge. He kept a dog, and his dog was a shockingly bad gardener, and did not improve my plants. So, one evening, while I walked alone, I saw this dog doing mischief, and being a long way off, I threw a stick at him, with some earnest advice as to his going home. This dog, instead of going home, picked up my stick, and came to me with it in his mouth, wagging his tail. He dropped the stick at my feet and look up at, looked up at me most kindly. What could I do but pat him and call him a good dog and regret that I had ever spoken roughly to him? In verse 18, there's an acknowledgement that it will not always be possible to live peaceably with all men as hard as you may try. It should never be sought through compromise or sacrifice of the gospel. Rather, we ought to obey God rather than men. In fact, if your Christian experience is one of continual, unbroken peace with all men, then you probably need to examine your life. In fact, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. And you're going to get that. You are going to get that in households where you have some who are following the Lord Jesus Christ and others who aren't. It's inevitable. Count yourself blessed when you suffer shame for the name of Jesus. Just be sure that if and when peace with others is broken, it is because of your saving relationship with the Saviour and not because of some avoidable or inappropriate conduct on your part. We'll look at verses 19 through to 21 now. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. If it sounds familiar, it ought to. Just look again at verses 14 and 17. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Recompense to no man evil for evil. It would seem that Paul felt the need to impress upon Christians the importance of not avenging yourselves. The great and perfect example must surely be 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who, when he was reviled or insulted, he reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Instead of avenging yourself, you are to give place unto wrath. Whose wrath? The wrath of God. Vengeance is his. He will repay. Yet again, this is where the rubber hits the road. When you commit to the Lord any perceived injustice towards yourself. Be extremely thankful that the righteous anger of God will never be poured out on you and pray for the repentance and salvation of your persecutors. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. By repaying evil towards you with acts of kindness, you shall heap coals of fire on the heads of your enemies. Where coals of fire has reference not to anger, but to godly sorrow that works repentance unto salvation, if it pleases the Lord. For your part, if you belong to Jesus and you have everlasting life in him, the Spirit of Christ abides in you. As such, not in your own strength, but with God enabling you, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And that is regardless of whether or not God works repentance in the hearts of your persecutors. All of the exhortations to do good, not only to friends, but also to your enemies, are eminently possible. But the start point must surely be to confess your own sins to God and to be the recipient of divine forgiveness and the grace to live a born-again life, having peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and a joy that cannot be quenched by the fiery darts of Satan and this world. Believe in Jesus as your saviour from sin and may the Spirit of God work in you to do his good pleasure as he progressively and continually conforms you to the image of Christ by the renewing of your mind. Amen.